Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for the gift of your Son. May we always remember. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit. And may he who caused the scripture to be written give us understanding today as we open it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians, chapter 2. We continue in our study in the book of Galatians, and it may seem to you that we are sort of racing through Galatians. After all, we've covered two chapters in four weeks. Um, But there is a method to my madness, if you wish. There are certain things that I want to establish that will help us understand the rest of the book. I've tried to do three things. First of all, make clear what Paul is saying, which is the foundation for the rest of this letter. First of all, that his apostleship is not from men or by men. And he makes this uh, point at the very beginning in verse number one. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then Paul goes on by telling us the story of his conversion and the events that came later. And you might wonder why he spends so much time on this. After all, he actually preached to the Galatians. They know who he is. Well, there's a, sort of a three-step progression that the false teachers are using. You challenge the authority of the messenger. Then you can challenge the authenticity of the message. And finally, you can challenge the authority of the message and say, no, that actually is not true. The second thing that Paul wants to establish is that his gospel did not come from men, from others. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So Paul deals with each step of this progression. Challenge the authority of the messenger. Well, the messenger is an apostle not sent by man, but by God. Challenge the authenticity of the message. This message was not made up. And it was not received from men. It was received by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then challenged the authority of the message. This message has absolute authority. Those reading this letter must take it to heart. In spelling this out, Paul tells his story. And this is the second thing that I've stressed in going through these two chapters of Galatians. The place of story. And you may be a bit tired of hearing this, but I think it bears repeating. We, I think, harbor expectations that the Old Testament and the Gospels are the place where we should expect to find stories. But when we get to the epistles, this is where we want the meat. This is where we want to get the theology. What Paul writes in these first two chapters of Galatians, I think, points out something very important, and that is the personal and the relational nature of truth. Truth is personal. And it is about relationships. When we abandon this, and I think it's very easy to do, then in fact we can separate faith and works. We can say we believe, but in fact do nothing about it. We can allow for a disconnect between what we believe and what we do. And as I said last week, we may in fact become very orthodox in our theology and yet live as though we are atheists. Live as though God does not exist, or if he does, he really doesn't care about what's going on in our lives. 
it also allows us to share the gospel without sharing the story of our life. And I think this is why what is called witnessing or sharing the gospel is so much easier to do to a total stranger than it is to someone who knows you. We would rather share the gospel, the information, the theology, if you wish, with someone who doesn't know us than to tell them our story because our story has problems. We're not perfect. We are sinners. It's not as though we can tell a wonderful story. We tell a story of God's grace in our lives, but also of our failures. So I think it's very tempting to say, no, no, I'll, I'll just I'll just tell the theology part of it. I won't tell the story part of it. And yet Paul doesn't do this. Um, the argument that Paul will make to the Galatians coming up in chapter three to the end of the book is not theoretical. It's not abstract. It is based on truth and truth is both both personal and relational. And so he tells the story of his conversion, the story of his meeting with Peter, the story of his second trip to Jerusalem, the story of Peter's coming to Antioch and the story of Paul's rebuking Peter publicly. The third thing I've tried to do is to make clear the implications of the gospel. And this we saw in Paul's confronting of Peter. In verses 14 through 21, Paul's position is spelled out, first of all, to Peter. Then I think to those men from Jerusalem and to Barnabas, who was also carried away by uh, by Peter's hypocrisy. One writer put it this way. The argument that is in verses 14 through 21 is strictly Jewish. For the moment, the Gentile Christians, whether in Antioch or Galatia, have become odd onlookers at a battle of giants. You have Paul, who is a Jew, confronting Peter and the others who are Jews. In the meantime, the Gentiles are the ones that they're talking about. That's us. And we're sort of sitting back and looking at what is going on in this titanic struggle. Peter and the others were Jews. We're told that Peter was the apostle to the Jews in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. Barnabas is a Jew from Cyprus. His given name was Joseph, but the apostles had nicknamed him Barnabas, that is the son of encouragement. And then there were certain men from Jerusalem. Who are these men? I mean, this is what Paul writes in verse number 12, if you'll look at it in chapter 2. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat, that is, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. I think we should take a moment to consider these people a bit. Who are these people? Well, we're told that they come from James. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. We're also told that they belong to the circumcision group. So at this point, we can only speculate, but there are several possibilities. First is that they were sent by James from the church in Jerusalem. But without his knowledge, they have taken a different position than he has. That is, they believe that a Gentile Christian must, in fact, be circumcised in order to become a part of the church. Uh, I don't think James knew this about these men. Uh, if, in fact, he sent them. The second possibility is that they they weren't sent by James. They simply came from the church in Jerusalem, and therefore they're seen as coming from James, who's the head of the church. Um, and since they come from Jerusalem, the mother church, they carry with them a certain amount of authority. I think the third possibility is that they falsely claim to have come from James. Paul doesn't say this, though, um, and I'm sort of reluctant to go beyond what he writes here. 
I do think, though, that James' name is important. The fact that, that Paul says this, that certain men came from James. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Paul doesn't care. We saw this earlier in chapter 2. Um, the pillars of the church, fine. Those who seem to be someone important, fine. Because earlier in the book, in chapter 1, in verses 8 and 9, Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul is saying indirectly, if in fact James sent these people, and James is the head of the mother church in Jerusalem, but this is what James is holding to, what he is teaching, he is wrong. And I don't care if he's wrong, he's wrong. And in fact, Paul will confront Peter on this. Peter, the lead apostle, if you wish. Uh, Paul is very concerned that the gospel be kept pure. And that if somebody else preaches another gospel, uh, this is not acceptable. In Acts chapter 15, we are told about the first church council that was held in Jerusalem. And there they discuss the issues that Paul deals with here in the book of Galatians. It starts out, Acts 15.1, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The implication is that these men came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and they were teaching something false. And James did not send them. James does not approve of them. And after the council is done, they decide to send out a letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. This is the letter that is sent out. And I would have you note the first sentence. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. And I would take it that these are the people that, that uh, came up and rattled Peter, if you wish. Peter was fine until they got up there and suddenly he's not going to eat with the Gentile believers anymore. He separates himself. In verses 14 through 24, we find the words that Paul spoke to Peter. This is what we dealt with last week. And the reason we went through it so fast is I simply wanted to make the case that it isn't only verse number 14 that is addressed to Peter, but the rest of the chapter as well. The message is about Christian identity. Paul says to Peter, this is what it means to be a Christian. And if this is true, 
then what Paul writes, even though it is written or spoken to Jews, is true of us as well. And thus he writes it to the Galatians here in chapter 2. I thought it would be beneficial for us to go back through this passage and to focus specifically on verse number 20. Look, if you would, we'll begin in verse number 11 and go to the end of the chapter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, Does that mean that Christ promotes sins? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Several things to consider. First of all, why the public rebuke? Why make a scene about this? Why does the clash have to be so public? It has been suggested, at least by one commentator, uh, the text doesn't say so, and so, again, I hesitate to go beyond the text, that Paul followed the pattern that Jesus set down in Matthew chapter 18. That is, that if there's a conflict, you go to your brother privately. And if he doesn't listen to you, you take others along. And finally, if he doesn't listen to those and yourself, then you make it a public affair. Um, so it may have been, in fact, that this started out as a private conversation and ends up as a public rebuke. But, you know, Paul doesn't say this. I do think it's possible that Paul did not follow Matthew 18. That public wrongdoing requires public rebuke. Certainly what Peter did was public. He used to eat with Gentile Christians, and we saw last week what a radical notion this was. Jews and Gentiles not only associating, but eating together. And then suddenly, Peter stops doing that because these Jews come up from Jerusalem. Paul calls it hypocrisy, and this hypocrisy must be confronted. One way or the other, this issue has to be resolved. Either Peter was right in eating with the Gentiles, or he was wrong in eating with them, and he was right to separate. This issue must be resolved. But Paul tells the Galatians in verse number 5, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Paul will not give an inch on this. The gospel and its implications are at stake. Not only the content of the gospel 
the good news of Jesus Christ, but the shape that it takes, how it should shape our lives. See, I think Peter and Barnabas and the others were denying the gospel verbally. I think they were very orthodox in what they said, but in their actions, they were denying the truth of the gospel. It is their inconsistency, their hypocrisy, and going back on what they once had done, that they are, in fact, undoing the truth or the strength of the gospel. And in the process, they are doing something appalling. Can you imagine? We are Gentiles, after all. Can you imagine if we could go back in time and be at the church in Antioch? And wouldn't it be wonderful to be having lunch with Peter and hear Peter tell us stories about the Lord Jesus? And then the next Sunday we come together and we notice that Peter's not eating with us anymore. He's only hanging out with the Jews. I mean, how shocking that must have been and how disturbing and troubling this must have been for the Christians there in Antioch. And remember, Antioch is where people were first called Christians. The second thing that we should consider from this passage is what is justification? This will be dealt with at length in chapter 3. I would remind you of what I told you earlier, that from other passages in Paul's writings, we know that to be justified is in fact a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It means given the status of being in the right. But Paul is not in a courtroom. He's at the dinner table. And so when he speaks of being justified by the works of the law, I don't think he's speaking of what we would normally call good works or keeping the law. He's talking about who do I eat with and the taboos of Jews eating with Gentiles. This is what he has in mind. Paul says to Peter, you are Jewish, but you are a Christian Jew. You should not separate yourself from Gentile Christians simply because you're Jewish. The force of the statement is not that we are granted the forgiveness of one's sins, and that we've come into a right relationship with God. That is true. But it is that when we are justified, we become a part of the family of God. We become a child of God. And we have the right to eat with our brothers and sisters no matter what ethnicity they are. Whatever else justification may include, and it includes quite a bit, it always has the reality of God's declaring that we are his children, that we are members of his family, that it doesn't matter if we are Jewish or Gentile, we by faith become a part of his family. As Paul tells Peter, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. I want to move ahead to verses 19 through 21, which in many ways is the heart of what Paul is saying here. I would just remind you of the shift in verse 18 that previously had been saying we, 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 and suddenly it becomes very personal, intensely personal, where Paul shifts to the singular first person, I. It is personal, but it's not individualistic. What Paul says about himself, he is also saying about Peter and saying about us as well as the people of God. What does it mean to be a Christian, the identity of a Christian? Well, there are three parts here. The first is death. We see this in verses 19 and 20. Paul makes three similar assertions. If you look at verse number 19, I died to the law. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And then in verse 20 as well, I no longer live. These statements are similar, but they're not identical. 
But they all point to the same reality. Who I was before is irrelevant. Paul says to Peter, you know what? I'm a Jew. I died to that. I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer. That identity is set aside. That identity is, in fact, irrelevant. Paul says to the Jews that are there with Peter, being a Jew is irrelevant. If you put your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, you've got to choose. Will your identity be with this man, the Messiah? Or will your identity be with your ethnicity? Paul says, in order to come and be a part of the family of God, the first thing is death. You die to this old identity. And the death of that identity should be final. I died, I have been crucified, I no longer live. Paul says we are no longer defined by possession of the law or its requirements that we keep ourselves away from the Jew, or the Gentiles. By the way, I mentioned last week uh, where we have in the translation Gentile... Uh, let's see, where are we here? Uh, Gentile sinners literally is lesser breeds. It's a, it's a derogatory term, pejorative, the way Jews look at Gentiles. Paul says, no, we are to die to that. One cannot be justified. One cannot be a child of God if one clings to an identity that is apart from Jesus Christ. This may sound foreign to us, but I think it's made clear by the second part of this, and that is union with Christ. In verse 20, Paul writes, Christ lives in me, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Before we go any further, doesn't it seem that Paul is contradicting himself? He just said, I no longer live, and then he says, the life I live, I live by faith. Remember that the first part is death. It's not the death of one's personality, but the death of one's identity apart from God. For one who is a Jew, that old identity is gone. For one who is a Gentile, that old identity is gone. The old person is gone. The old person should no longer live. There is a new person, a new identity. And this new person is identified. This new person is united with Jesus the Messiah. This is something Paul expands on, not only in this letter, but in other letters, uh, particularly his letter to the Romans in Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. That is, those who belong to the Messiah, those who say death to this old identity, this is my new life in Christ. These belong to the Messiah and they are in Christ. What is true of him is true of us as well. In Romans 8, Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just say, I think at different times, different generations struggle with different parts of the Bible. This, I think, is hard for us as Americans. We really are very individualistic and we don't, we don't 
I think, like or appreciate the notion of someone representing us. We have a president, but if you didn't vote for him and you don't like his policies, it's very easy and oftentimes what we say is, he doesn't represent me. Yes, he does. Okay, he is the president. But I think we struggle with that. We don't like the notion of someone standing in our place, someone representing, someone who is our identity. And so when we are told that we are in Christ, that we are united with Christ, I think for us, this takes a bit of work to appreciate and to understand. There are two aspects to being united in Christ. On the one hand, we become incorporated into Christ, and on the other hand, Christ is incorporated into us. That is, we experience his ministry, his work, Paul says, his death and his resurrection. It is also Christ who does his work through us, who are his people. Paul will flesh this out later in this letter, um, and I plan to explain it when we come to it later. But it is a key component to the gospel. Without it, the gospel is not the gospel. If we are not united with Christ, then the good news is not good news. And you're preaching another gospel, Paul would say. If we are not united with Christ, well, what Paul says later in the letter makes no sense. In chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. That is, redemption involves being adopted as a son into God's family. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul writes, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Put on Christ. We are united with Christ. And then verse number 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When we are united with Christ, it means that we are now in the new creation. We are part of the new creation. And we have been transformed from being slaves, that's the old identity, and now we have become sons. United with the Son, Jesus, who is the Son of God. As with much of what we see in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is just laying the groundwork here, and he will flesh it out later in this letter. There's one more thing, though, before we leave this business, the matter of being in union with Christ. It's mentioned in chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, but I think it is critical to what Paul says to Peter. A Christian is not only united with Christ and therefore is a child of God, a Christian is also united with other Christians. That's why Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This means that Peter and the others are clearly wrong. They are acting as though they are not one in Christ Jesus. That somehow you have sort of first class believers and second class believers. And in order to get up here, you have to become like these people up here. 
You have to become like the Jews. This is an absolute distortion of the gospel, and Paul tells him as much. And Paul will finish the rest of this letter by explaining to the Galatians how that this is a false gospel and what the true gospel is. There is a third aspect. I mentioned death and union. The third is love. Last week I told you that Paul adds one more thing here in verse number 20. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As I mentioned, I don't think Paul is just throwing this in. Um, I also don't think he includes it for the reason that I'm about to give. But at the moment, I think at this point we're thinking, wow, we finally left those stories behind and now we're getting to the meat, to the real theology. I think Paul gently reminds us that in fact true theology is personal by nature. It is relational. Jesus loved us and he gave himself personally for us. The death and even resurrection of Jesus Christ are not mere transactional events. I've got X amount of sins that need to be paid for, so God takes the blood of Jesus and washes away my sins. End of story. No, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul doing here? Why does he write this here? In part, I think Paul is defining what love is and what it looks like. It is the giving of oneself. Paul has already mentioned this self-giving in the very beginning, the very opening of the letter, in the greeting. If you look at chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It is this self-giving, the giving of himself, that made redemption possible. It is because of his self-giving that we are united with him, that we are sons of God, that we have the Spirit. But there's something else. Although it's not mentioned here, it will be later in chapter 5. If Christ gave himself for us in love, and if in doing so he gives us a new identity, and he unites himself with us, then should we, who are united with Christ, should we not be marked by this, self, this same self-giving love? Peter, Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. The self-giving Messiah. You are now in the Messiah. Should you not be marked by the same self-giving love? Why are you treating your brothers in such an appalling way? In chapter 5 we find, Serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. And a few verses later in chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Thus begins the list that Paul gives us. It begins with the giving of oneself. This isn't what we find in Peter. This isn't what we find in the men from Jerusalem. This isn't even what we find in Barnabas, who's carried away by this hypocrisy. Paul brings this up in another letter to the Corinthians who were resting in their identity not as 
Jews, because many of them are Gentiles, but rather they are resting in their identity as wise people, as people who have knowledge. And Paul must correct them the way that he does Peter. In chapter 8, they write to Paul, we know that we all possess knowledge. And Paul answers, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. The key is love. This is something sorely lacking in this, this scenario, this situation in Antioch. Back to the matter of justification. What is involved in justification? Death to one identity. Secondly, the gaining of a new identity by being identified and in union with Christ and being marked by love. If that is not what we find, well, listen to verse number 21. I do not set aside the grace of God For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If it is not Christ's self-giving love, if it is not death to the old identity and union with Christ, a new identity, then why did Jesus die? what, What is the whole purpose? Paul says there is none. Christ died for nothing. But in fact, Christ loved us. He gave himself that we might die to this old person and become someone new in Christ. The third thing briefly to consider is who won this battle? Paul doesn't say, and I think this speaks volumes, because it's not a matter of being right. It's not a matter of who won this argument or this debate. Um, It's the gospel that Paul's fighting for. It's the truth that he's fighting for. It's not a question of winning or losing. I think Paul saw where this was going. I don't think Peter did, but Paul did. First, you say, well, we can't eat together. We can't eat together because the law says we can't. And the next step we saw in Acts 15.1, you know what? You're not saved. At first, it's just you can't eat at us at the big table because you're Gentiles. But Paul sees where this is going. Once you make that division, then what you're saying ultimately is these people are not believers. They are not Christians. Paul is fighting for the gospel, both in its content, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, but in its shape. The church is to be marked by love. Before we came to Galatians, we finished a series on just war. I don't know if you remember, but one of the things that we saw is that the key is the matter of love. We are never excused from the command to love our neighbors ourselves. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, as those who are in Christ, united with Christ, we are to love our neighbor and we are to do justice. Not only in times of peace, but in times of war. We, as the people of God, are to demonstrate we are to embody. Because remember, this union is a two-way street. Not only is Christ in us, we are in Christ. But as Christ in us, we are to embody his love to the world. The long-suffering love of Jesus. The self-loving 
uh, love of Jesus is to be seen in us. Jesus told his disciples the night before he died, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul could very easily say to Peter, You are not a disciple of Jesus if you do not love your Gentile brothers, these Gentile Christians. One last thing. We are to love each other, but this is impossible. We cannot do this on our own. We do not have the capacity to. We may think we do, but we do not. And this is why it is death and then it is union. It is Christ in us. It is the Spirit of God in us that enables us to love one another, to be self-giving, to give ourselves for the benefit of others. This is what it means to be a Christian.